It can be tricky to determine how a conflict starts in the Middle East. This region is so weighed down by disputes over land and identity. There's always some bit of nuance or scrap of context you run the risk of leaving out. So instead of telling you how Israel's war with Hamas began this weekend, I'll tell you what it felt like on the ground. It was Saturday morning, Shabbat. That's when the assault started. One rocket after another. More than 2,000 of them. That was shocking enough. But then it starts to become clear as the morning goes on that uh, the rocket fire was almost cover for something else and, and that the real point of this operation, of this attack, was to, to sneak people across the border. Greg Karlstrom covers the Middle East for The Economist. After the rockets, he says, militants streamed into Israel on paragliders, drove through border fences, even swam ashore from the Mediterranean Sea. Then they started going house to house. Greg was glued to Israeli TV as the full extent of the incursion became clear. Uh, The first thing I heard was um, the Iron Dome, uh, which immediately freaked me out because we haven't heard that for a while. Greg watched as Israeli families phoned in from safe rooms to explain what was going on. This woman said she was barricaded for more than 24 hours. And all we can hear is shooting going on outside, uh, which look a terrorist walking around our houses. And it was just terrifying. Reports emerged of Israelis at an outdoor music festival, surrounded, attacked. Some played dead. Video shows one woman being carried away on the back of a motorcycle. Hundreds have now been reported killed in Israel and Gaza. More than 150 more are being held captive. And the war has just begun. When you saw the videos of people being taken hostage, videos from things like that music festival where people were surrounded, taken, what did you think Israel's response would be? Well, it was very clear from you know, the first few hours, it was very clear that this was unprecedented. You know, we heard a lot of people talking about 1973, drawing comparisons to the Yom Kippur War in 1973, in the sense that uh, what happened two days ago was an intelligence failure. It was something that caught Israel unaware, and it was the biggest intelligence failure since 1973. But in other ways, that analogy didn't hold up. You know, what happened in 73, an invasion by Egypt and Syria, that was a war that, you know, it was it was a war between two armies, and it was a war that was really fought between militaries. It was between states. Yeah, exactly. And, and the kinds of scenes that we saw uh, on Saturday where it was Israeli towns that had been temporarily taken over by militants, there were images of dead bodies piled up at bus stations and hostages being taken across the border. That was something that the country almost hasn't seen since 1948, since the War of Independence uh, 75 years ago. From the people you've spoken to, what is the predominant feeling right now on the ground in Israel and Gaza? 
In Israel, there's still a lot of shock, and of course that is laced with a great deal of anger, even from Israelis who you wouldn't describe as being particularly hawkish or particularly right-wing. Talking to Palestinians in Gaza, fear, I think, is the, the predominant emotion. There's a sense that something much worse is yet to come. This is only the beginning of the Israeli response. Today on the show, Netanyahu is promising a complete siege of Gaza. What does that mean for Israelis and Palestinians? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. There are still so many questions about this attack, how Hamas was able to so easily take down Israel's border defenses, how the Israeli intelligence service was caught so off guard. But the biggest question is why now? Until this weekend, Israelis seemed confident that Hamas was not looking for another large-scale conflict. Some observers have speculated this attack has something to do with a normalization deal in the works between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The two countries have been negotiating over opening up diplomatic relations. Maybe Hamas's goal was to whip up tension, disrupt those talks. But Greg is not convinced. I mean, I think it will certainly delay efforts at a normalization deal, and that is not for Hamas an unwelcome side effect of this. But I think their considerations are much more local or are domestic. Uh, If you look at the situation in the Palestinian territories, you have a succession crisis brewing Uh, in the West Bank, where the president, Ahmed Abbas, 87 years old, not in great health, doesn't have a clear successor, but there's going to be a change of power soon. There haven't been elections in in Palestine in almost 18 years now, but there's a moment where it seems like a political change is coming. And to me, a lot of this has to do with those domestic politics, with Hamas trying to do something that boosts its popularity amongst Palestinians ahead of a political change. And of course, at the same time, Israel has moved to the far right, and it's in a a strange political situation as well. It is. And we don't know exactly what happened, this intelligence failure that everyone has talked about. We don't know why it happened, and I think it will be months before we know. But one thing that I've heard from a number of Israelis is that it has something to do with, with this far right government. First, the Israeli army, the Israeli security services, they've really been focused on the West Bank, not Gaza, in recent months, because This government, through planned expansion of uh, Israeli settlements and and other actions, has pushed tensions to a boil in the West Bank. And so there's been much more concern about the West Bank than about Gaza. This is also a government where you look at some of the ministers in this government, uh, they have no experience in security matters. The the minister in charge of the police, Itamar Ben-Gavir, is a right-wing ideologue who has no background at all in security. So you combine an army that is focused elsewhere with a cabinet that is very inexperienced on these matters. And I think that that goes some way towards explaining how Israel was caught so unaware by this. Yeah, you're talking about this intelligence failure. And I feel like it's worth pausing to just explain why this attack was so surprising, which means explaining a little bit about what exactly the Gaza Strip is, which is a small sliver of land surrounded by fencing and watchtowers. It's been called an open-air prison. It's also incredibly dense. So it's kind of a big deal that somehow Hamas was able to launch an attack from there without Israel knowing it was coming. 
It, it is. It's a very big deal. On the intelligence side, every phone call that you make in Gaza is routed through an Israeli phone network. So the Israeli security services have the ability to eavesdrop on any phone call that takes place in Gaza. They also have a network of human informants across the territory. I mean, it's remarkable when you talk to Israeli security officials, they have not been to Gaza in 18 years since Israel withdrew from the, the Gaza Strip in 2005. Because they don't feel like they need to worry about it? They're not able to go into Gaza. The Israelis decided in 2005 to do what they call a disengagement, to withdraw all of their troops and, and essentially seal it off from the world. But they are still able to, from outside, penetrate a lot of what's happening inside. Then you talk about the security situation. Uh, again, fenced off is, is really an understatement. I mean, there is... In some parts of the border, there are massive concrete slabs with automatic robot-controlled weapons mounted on top of them. In other areas, they are uh, just fences, metal fences, but they are studded with high-tech electronic sensors. The Israelis spent almost a billion dollars a few years ago creating an underground barrier to try and stop Hamas from digging tunnels out of Gaza. All of this money, all of this effort that's been put into constructing this barrier, when it came down to it, they just cut their way through it and drove across on motorbikes. Hmm. I do want to note something else here, which is that Hamas does not represent all Palestinians, right? Like, what has happened is between Hamas and Israel, but Hamas is only part of the picture when it comes to representation of the people who are within Gaza, Right. It is. And they like to say that they are an elected government, which is narrowly true. But again, the last election, the last parliamentary election was in 2006. The average person in Gaza is 18 years old. The median person is 18 years old, which means the last time there was a Palestinian election, most people in Gaza weren't even born. So they literally have had no opportunity to choose their leadership. I've been going to Gaza for more than a decade now. And one thing that I find increasingly when I go is there is a level of popular anger and popular resentment aimed at Hamas. Of course, there's anger towards Israel. There's anger towards Egypt, both of which maintain a, a blockade on Gaza. But uh, the group has lost a lot of popular support. It was elected in 2006 partly as a protest vote against Fatah, which is the nationalist party that controls the West Bank. It's an incredibly corrupt party. People opted for Hamas in 2006, not necessarily because they agreed with the group's ideology, but because they thought it was a cleaner alternative. It has turned out not to be that. Most people in Gaza think that Hamas is equally corrupt, and they think that uh, it has done an atrocious job running the territory over the past 16 years, but they have no opportunity to change their leaders. And so they're stuck with this unpopular, ineffective government. Let's talk about what happens now, as far as we know. My understanding is they're still fighting off Hamas fighters inside Israel itself. Is that so? They are. There were some ongoing hostage situations for almost two full days uh, after Saturday's attack, where militants were holed up inside of houses and they had taken hostages. And it took the army a long time to, to deal with those hostage situations. They also don't know how many people, how many militants crossed the border? The, the border fence was cut open for a long period of time. And so they're concerned that even if they've cleared out the, the towns and villages along the border, uh, that there might be more militants elsewhere in Israel who they don't, uh, who they're not aware of. So you have Israel still dealing with that 
internally at the same time, as you say, preparing for what will likely be uh, a very large uh, response in Gaza. There's airstrikes that began a couple of days ago, but there's a debate over uh, whether Israel will launch a ground offensive. That's something it hasn't really done in any of its past wars in Gaza. Uh, it's something the army hasn't wanted to do because it would mean uh, prolonged bloody urban combat, but uh, it's something that there's a lot of public demand for right now in Israel. Yeah, you've called attention to this analysis in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, saying that Israel's got four bad options now. Can you just lay out what those options are? The first one is not a military option. It's to make a deal, a prisoner swap with Hamas, these dozens of Israelis who've been taken hostage and brought back to Gaza. Uh, the point of uh, capturing them was obviously to exchange them as Israel has done uh, in the past in 2011, for example, when it freed about 1,000 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier who had been held in Gaza for five years. Hamas would like to make a similar deal, hand over these hostages in exchange for thousands of Palestinians who are being held in Israel. But that does not seem likely, given how brutal the attack was. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think neither the political class nor the public right now is in any mood to make a deal. So that leaves you with more military responses, one of which is what Israel has done in past wars, which is a campaign of aerial bombing against Gaza, which has already started. That has been in the past, and that will be again devastating for Palestinians. In 2014, uh, during that long war, you had thousands of people killed. You had tens of thousands of people who were left homeless afterwards. And at the end of that, the the concern in Israel is that you, you do all of that and you don't actually change the status quo in Gaza. You don't remove Hamas from power by doing that. You don't perhaps seriously degrade its military capabilities. And so this cycle might continue to repeat so then the other two options that have been floated, one of them is to tighten even further this blockade of Gaza and essentially try to starve not just Hamas, but two million people into submission. That is more or less what Israel has been doing for the past 16 or 17 years, and uh, it hasn't worked. The blockade has immiserated Gaza. Uh, it has left it at a point where two-thirds of the population is unemployed, 80% of people need humanitarian aid to survive. It has destroyed the economy, but it has not brought political change. So that's not really a viable option either. And the last is to go ahead with a ground offensive, which will be devastating for everyone involved. You've actually argued that what happened this weekend, it, it just basically tells you about how Israel's approach to Palestinians has failed. Because it was assumed that if you divided the Palestinians so they couldn't reach each other, you know, there's the West Bank, there's the Gaza Strip, it would sort of dilute the power of this group. And something else happened instead, which is, as you said, it just lays out that there are, are not good options here. And I think what's particularly grim irony about the the divide and rule concept is you have two entities in the Palestinian territories. You have Hamas, which is a militant group which has been bent on Israel's destruction for decades. And then you have the Palestinian Authority in the occupied West Bank, which is led by a party that is open to a two-state solution, is open to negotiating with Israel about an end to the conflict, and has been committed to that for 
30 years now. What Prime Minister Netanyahu has done, what he has made policy over the past decade and a half that he's been in power for that almost uh, full stretch uninterrupted, what he has done is tried to empower Hamas and weaken the PA because his ultimate goal is he doesn't want to negotiate. He doesn't want to have a two-state solution. He doesn't want to make a deal with the Palestinians. And so he has done everything in his power to weaken the PA. He's refused negotiating with it. He has at various times imposed economic sanctions on it, cut off tax revenues that are meant to be handed over to the PA. He's tried to weaken the more moderate body. And at the same time, he has empowered Hamas by being willing to cut prisoner deals with it, negotiate with it on various economic concessions to Gaza. And we see where that has led. You're making it sound like this invasion is the obvious outcome of all that. It is. And this is something that for years, uh, some of the more forward-thinking people in the Israeli security establishment have warned about that this is not going to lead anywhere good. I mean, what he's set up is a situation where if you are the moderate group willing to talk to Israel, you get nowhere, you get no benefits from that. And so the only way that you can boost your popularity amongst Palestinians is by fighting Israel. And you end up in a situation where, I mean, is anyone surprised that a group like Hamas decides the best way to boost its popularity is to carry out the most bloody, gruesome attack that Israel has ever seen? We'll be right back. The Israeli government might have been caught unaware by the initial attack on Saturday, but they wasted no time responding. The military launched airstrikes into Gaza, and hundreds of thousands of army reserves got called into service. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went on TV to declare to the country, we are at war, which is a pretty stunning choice of words that Israel hasn't applied to confrontations with Hamas for years. Meanwhile, some Israelis are wondering if this moment could be an opportunity for political change in their country. On Sunday, in his first televised address since the attack, Israeli President Isaac Herzog called for the formation of an emergency government. I asked Greg, what is that exactly? Well, the hope amongst many more moderate or centrist Israelis, including the president, is that this crisis at the moment can be a way to end the far-right government that has ruled Israel for almost a year now. So there have been talks about forming a unity government where Prime Minister Netanyahu would join forces with Yair Lapid, the opposition leader, and various other centrist politicians. And this is something I think a great many Israelis would like to see happen. The problem with it is the makeup of that emergency government or unity government Uh, Lapid has said he's willing to join, but only if Netanyahu gets rid of the hard right elements in his government. Any chance that would happen? (laughs) No, I I think very little chance. I mean, Netanyahu, if he does that, he all but guarantees that when the war is over and the inevitable early elections are called, that he's finished. His, His career as prime minister is over. And so he wants to hang on to the far right so that he can hang on to this government for a few more years. And try to preserve his grip on power. Lapid, though, is not willing to join a far-right government and legitimize this government that he has spent the year, that so many Israelis have spent the year protesting and, and describing as the worst government in Israel's history. If you're a centrist politician, you don't want to come and, and put a kosher seal on that, so to speak. Netanyahu has warned Gazans to clear out of any places where Hamas might be hiding. But I guess I wonder... 
How possible is that in a place as dense as Gaza with as many people right next to each other, no good way to leave? Like, is that a possibility? No, the short answer is no. I mean, they have nowhere to go. Uh, You know, on one side, there is Israel, which allows a very limited number of people from Gaza to cross over for the day to work in Israel, but they have to go back at night. But that's about it. They don't allow very many people to leave. Egypt, on the other side, also has very tight restrictions on which Palestinians are allowed to leave to the point where every day they will have a certain number of buses that are allowed to take Palestinians from the Gaza border crossing. So sometimes there are only two or three buses. And if those buses get full, you can't leave. It doesn't matter if you have a visa to go somewhere else. It doesn't matter if you're a student trying to go abroad to study. Uh, You're just unable to leave. So, I mean, what you see whenever there is a war in Gaza is that thousands of people end up fleeing to schools that are operated by the United Nations, by UNRWA, which is the UN aid agency for Palestinians, because that is seen as the only safe place to go in Gaza. Those schools are clearly identified as being UN facilities. Their locations are communicated to the Israeli military. And so there's an understanding that these places will not be bombed. Aside from that, People don't know where to go. You talk to Palestinians. I remember talking to people in 2014 who said, for example, we were told to leave our area in the north of Gaza. And so we have relatives who live in the south. We went down to the south. We stayed with them. But then we were told we had to leave the south. And you run out of places to go because this is such a tiny area and the fighting tends to be so widespread. The bombing tends to be so widespread across Gaza that there is a feeling that there really is nowhere that is safe. With the announcement today that almost everything will be blocked from getting into Gaza and the fact that people have nowhere to go, it raises the specter of a true humanitarian crisis about to emerge in the Gaza Strip. It does. I mean, if this promise to impose a total siege and not let anything in, if if Israel does what it says it's going to do, it's humanitarian catastrophe doesn't even begin to describe it. There are some limited goods that are able to enter via the crossings with Egypt. But the vast majority of what goes into Gaza, the fuel, the food, everything else goes via Israeli crossings. If you cut that off, the place becomes uninhabitable, becomes really uninhabitable in short order. It feels kind of impossible to have a conversation about Israel and Palestine without it devolving into an argument about who started it. And I know that People are blaming Gaza for attacking first in this particular conflict. What are Palestinian activists and supporters saying to that? This is always the problem with this conflict is it's where you choose to start the conversation. Wherever you start it, there's always something that happened before it that someone else will want to use as the reference point. So, yeah, when you talk to Palestinians, they point out rightly that Gaza has been under this crippling blockade for almost two decades now, that two million people have been penned into a very tiny bit of land where the economy is a mess, where clean water is very hard to find, where electricity is often only available for a few hours a day. And aside from the day-to-day socioeconomic conditions, people have no hope. I was there last year uh, doing a series of interviews with, with young people. You talk to people who are teenagers who are in their 20s. 
every single one of them, to a man, to a woman, they've never left Gaza. And they've never dreamed of leaving Gaza because they have grown up thinking that going outside of this 365 square kilometer sliver of land is impossible. And that is very important context to understanding what happened over the weekend. Greg, I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show and giving some context to what's going on. Thank you. My pleasure. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.